So it's Easter Sunday. I'm not sure if you knew that. Actually, I knew. I know you knew that. But like when it comes to Easter Sunday, there seems to be this uh, obligation that we are going to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and for good reason. It really is for good reason, because at the very center of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the Apostle Paul tells us that if the resurrection is not true, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we should, above all people, be pitied. The resurrection is the center of the Christian faith. And so that's what we're going to be considering today by looking at Matthew uh, chapter 28. But next week, we're going to also begin a new sermon series on the Gospel of Mark, and it's called The, the Crown and the cross. And so as we, so in some ways, as we're talking today about Jesus' resurrection, we're also talking about the fact that Jesus is the king of kings. And so even as we, do, we look at the resurrection today from Matthew 28, this is in many ways going to be shaping our, us in our eyes as we move into the gospel of Mark next week. So we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 20, and I'll be reading um, from the ESV, and you can follow along in your worship guides or on the slides behind me. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. But he is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. Do not be afraid. Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask that you be with us now as we look at this incredible reality that you have defeated sin, that you have defeated death, that you have rose your son from the dead. So Lord, be with us now by your word and spirit. May you help us to see what it means for us to live in light of your resurrection. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Have you ever heard the song Submarine? It's sung by the Lumineers. It came out in 2012, and perhaps you don't know the title, but if you would hear it, uh, I, I expect that most of you would know it. You, it's a very popular song. It's been on the radio, but here's the, the, the first line, the first few lyrics. I believe submarines underneath deep blue seas saw the flags Japanese. No one will believe me. See, the, the, the songwriters latch on to a, a simple reality here. They latch on to the fact that we are a skeptical people. When we hear eyewitnesses, when, we, when people tell us stories of things that they have witnessed, we are actually very skeptical. We don't easily believe people. Here's just a few examples. For those who doubted, the whether they, the, for those who questioned the fact, the claim, like so there's this claim about the Titanic, that it would be unsinkable. For those who would question the fact that the Titanic could not be sunk, what, were, what happened to them? They were simply dismissed. And, and okay, and that was in 1917, but let's fast forward to the 1980s when scientists and engineers questioned whether or not the space shuttle Challenger was ready for space flight. Did anyone listen to them? They were dismissed, and so and Challenger exploded in 1985. This is just two examples where even with people with credibility, share their testimony and their witness, we doubt them because we actually are a people who simply believe whatever we want to believe. That's, that's, a, that's a crazy truth. And we, this is even true as it comes to God. We believe whatever we want to about God. That here we have this incredible, incredible story of the resurrection. And as I said earlier, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the very center of the Christian faith. Like, the Paul, like Paul said, if the resurrection is not true, then we above all people are meant to be pitied. And, and this, is, this is so central to our faith that, in fact, it shapes and changes everything in our lives. It touches everything in our lives. But, and there's a big but, it's like, do people rise from the dead? Like, we have loved ones who have died. We, perhaps it's been friends, mothers, parents, grandparents, siblings, children that we have buried, that we have mourned and grieved over. And death is our greatest enemy. And yet we have this resurrection that challenges our assumptions about life. And so as we go through this text, I want us to think, three, think about three very specific questions. Is the resurrection true? Is the resurrection true? The second one is, is the re what is the significance of the resurrection? And then thirdly, what does this mean for our lives? 
And so, as I said earlier, the resurrection changes everything about our lives. And so, on the very, the very first thing we must consider is the resurrection true. Is it true? And as we go, dive into this passage, the reality is that people have doubted and questioned Jesus' resurrection ever since it happened. As we look in this text, we see this quite clearly in verses 11 through 15. The Roman guards, they, they, the Roman guards are witnesses to the resurrection themselves. The angels come and they are paralyzed like dead men. And so what do they do? They go to the chief priests first. They go to the chief priest and they, they report, hey, here's everything that happened. And so the chief priests say, they are also become witnesses. They, they hear this eyewitness testimony. They do not want to believe what they are hearing. And so they say, you know what, here's some money. And this is the lie that you should tell them. And so and this is despite hearing about the, the earthquake and the bright light and the empty grave. None of that moved the priest's hearts. Instead, the hearts of these priests are cold. They're calloused. They're unwilling to admit the truth that Jesus really did arise from the grave. And these are the same men who, who yelled and championed Jesus' crucifixion as well. And so the, what we see here is that the lie that was being spread from the very beginning, uh, from, the, from the day of Jesus' resurrection, is that the disciples came and stole his body. That's just one ancient example of how, we, how uh, there are questions and doubts and unbeliefs about the resurrection. But even today, there's many other examples that we could give. Some uh, scholars about 50 years ago, 100 years ago, would say Jesus didn't really die. He actually just fainted upon the cross, and so then he was put in the, the grave. But there's, that is some very wishful thinking. Like, here's a man who has been like, go going without sleep for an entire day. He has been whipped. He has been crucified. He has been pierced in the side. And uh, the, these Roman execu executioners have said... They have determined his cause of death. They have called the time of death. These professional killers have said he's dead. And so then this man's put in the tomb. Like, uh, and these, this tomb is under lock and seal. It's a massive stone that uh, it would take six men to cover up. And so that just shows wishful thinking that, like, no, Jesus did not faint. Another said, another said that it wasn't Jesus who died. It was actually his brother. But you know what? Jesus' mother's there witnessing this, everything, and Jesus' loved ones. And it's like uh, certainly they would know that this is not Jesus. They, they would know that. So the, this is just showing you that we believe what we want to believe. We hear what we want to hear. But one of the things that we are hearing more and more today about the, the, the resurrection is this idea that it is a simple legend. That is a, a simple legend. That is like, you know what, these – and this – this this idea assumes that these Gospels were written like hundreds or years later. Or perhaps it's the, the one idea is that like these, these disciples of Jesus, they, like the, the other assumption could be that these disciples wrote these Gospels early on. But the reality is, if that would even be true, and this just shows wishful, fanciful thinking where we believe what we want to believe, like, that just fails for a number of simple reasons. Like, here's one example. Re, re, this is one example. 
And this is a crazy detail that you would not include unless it were true. And this one crazy detail is the fact that the very first eyewitnesses of the resurrection were two women, were, were three women. And it's well acknowledged because in the ancient world, women had no legal rights. Women had no voice. That, in fact, you could take a dozen, two dozen, three dozen women who would say, hey, I saw this, and you can have one man, a 15-year-old, say, like, no, I didn't do that. I saw it completely differently. And the man would be believed. The woman would be dismissed. So the idea is that it is counterproductive to include the very first detail of the resurrection account of, being, of having the eyewitnesses be women, unless it were true. It just goes against every assumption, every thought within the ancient world. Because the, these women's eyewitness testimony would be dismissed by everyone and anyone. And you know what? We see this even in the disciples' own lives. Like the, when the disciples, I believe it's as John chapter 20, when the, the, the women come back and the disciples hear the report, uh, they say, what nonsense are you talking about? The disciples didn't even believe it. And so Peter and John ran to the tomb. And discovered that the women were telling the truth as well. And, and so Chuck, Chols Chuck Colson, um, as he uh, was, Chuck Colson was Richard Nixon's hatchet man. And he was convicted during the uh, Watergate scandal. And, and he converted to Christianity late in life. He converted to Christianity specifically when he was in prison. And this is what he said. On, on this, he said, he said that I know that the resurrection is a fact. Watergate proved it to me. How do I know this? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And then they proclaimed the truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of those men were beaten, tortured, stoned, and even put in prison. They would not have endured it unless it were true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they could not keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So why would you mention these details, that women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection? Because you could not, per and like, this is so insane, it's so crazy, because you wouldn't persuade anybody that the resurrection was true unless it was. And so when these women told the men the news, like, the disciples said, it's nonsense. And so they went to check it for themselves. And even when Peter and James and John and the other disciples saw the, 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 and witnessed the resurrected Christ, Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless my hands touch his scarred hands myself. And what does Jesus do? He appeared to Thomas and his doubt and said, put your hands in my hand, put your finger in my hands, put your finger in my side. Is it not I? See, Jesus graciously appeared to all these disciples and between the resurrection and the ascension, we know that the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to 400 some of his followers. And so Matthew's gospel ends right here in chapter 28, just before Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, which is taken up for us in Acts 1. But if anyone would believe in the resurrection, 
it would be one of those 400 people. That's, the lie, that's actually a lie that we tell ourselves. If anybody's going to believe that Jesus rose again from the dead, it would certainly be one of the ones that he appeared to. Here's another crazy detail in our passage that just goes to, to challenge some underlying assumptions of, and of today. It's in verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Again, why would you include this type of fact unless the resurrection happened, unless it was true, and you can verify the fact that it was true? And let me just pause right here and just zoom in on, the, on doubt. Because here we see that Jesus' disciples worshipped Jesus, but some of Jesus' disciples doubted as well. And there are a few kinds of doubt. On one hand, there's a kind of doubt that one simply mentions to excuse belief, to excuse critical thinking, to ex excuse healthy self-evaluation. And I've seen people just simply walk away from the faith by simply saying, I doubt. But they're not asking some hard questions about their lives. They're not asking hard questions of God. They're not, they're not doing the work of doubt. They're using doubt to simply walk away. And then on the other hand, I've seen the kind of doubt that is actually used. It is actually used as a motivator to dive deeper into Scripture, to dive deeper into God's family, to dive deeper into the claims of Christ and into the Christian faith. And when it's used that way, doubt is actually incredibly transformative and, and redemptive. Shockingly, doubt can be used to kill unbelief. Doubt can be used to kill skepticism and cynicism. There's this one book it's called Doubting Resurrection, and this is how the authors talk about doubt in this way. They say, whether you are a skeptic, believer, or somewhere in between, press into your doubt or push back on your faith. Question your faith and question your doubts. Determine good reasons for believing or not believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he really did defeat death, it changes everything. Doubt well, and you can walk away from skepticism, cynicism, or blind faith into intellectual security, perceptive belief, and deeper commitment. You can know that you have honestly doubted the resurrection. And so as we just wrap up this point, is it true? Is the resurrection true? We, the answer is it is. It is true. But I know that some of you are here today, and you're doubting. And I want to invite you to lean into your doubt, to lean into these questions, to lean into the, this idea. It's like, to even lean into that question, is this true? Lean into that, and you'll find the Spirit working in your heart, changing you and redeeming you and transforming you. And so let's move on to the next question. And this is really thinking about the resurrection in, in, this, in the way of, what's the big deal? Like, what's the, what is the significance of the resurrection? And so we, I, I really want to zoom in on verse 18. And this is when Jesus comes and says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See, the resurrection means something for our lives. It means that Jesus is our king. Jesus is Lord. When Jesus died upon the cross, Jesus died. He really, truly died. But he did more than just dying. He didn't his heart stopped beating. That is not all, not all. That is not what all happened. He defeated our greatest enemies. He defeated sin. He defeated, defeated death. He defeated evil. 
He defeated our cold and hardened hearts. And so the ultimate act of Jesus' humiliation, which is his death, is actually the beginning of his coronation. Throughout his entire life, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And this claim is why the Jews sought to kill him. It's the, this claim is why the Jews killed him. But the resurrection proves once and for all that Jesus is truly the Son of God. And it proves the fact that he is God himself. And so if you even jump to the end of the entire biblical story, to the book of Revelation, Jesus is promising that one day... A day will come when there will be no more tears, no more sorrow. There will be no more death. In fact, he says, behold, I'm making all things new. And the truth of the resurrection, when Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life, the truth is, this is true even for our lives now. That Jesus is doing something in our lives, that he is making our lives new as well. This is what we proclaimed earlier with our assurance of forgiveness. That we said that we said this, or we heard this. You are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Friends, the, the resurrection means that you are saved and freed from the guilt of sin. That Jesus is has done something in your life, that he has liberated you from your sin. And so while sin is powerful, it's not the final authority in our lives. And so what this means is that slowly but surely, one day at a time, that Jesus is working in our hearts more and more, deeper and deeper, and he is saving us from the power of sin. And the resurrection guarantees this. The old is gone. The new has come. The resurrection is the ultimate proof that one day we will be fully rescued from the presence of sin. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. We don't know when Jesus will come again. But the truth of the resurrection is this, that with each passing day, we are get, we're one more day closer to the restoration of all things. The resurrection is significant. It is incredible. But how is this possible? How is this possible? It is possible because we are united to Christ in faith. In fact, our call, to, our call to confession asked this, or said this, you have been buried and raised with Christ by the glory of the Father and called to walk in newness of life. So if you have died with Christ to the ways of the world, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? This is a, an incredible picture of our union with Christ. The restoration of all things is possible because we are united to him. Our resurrection is possible because we are united to Jesus Christ. And my friend, uh, Bryce, uh, shared this story with me this past week, and I, he really, I, I loved it, uh, as it really got helped me understand something about our union with Christ. And this is the illustration he shared. But last summer, uh, Bryce and his family... We're on a family vacation in western Colorado, and they're driving through the mountains. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's incredibly scenic. They're all in a, in a van, and they're driving up this very steep dirt road in, in, in this minivan, so not a Jeep, not an SUV, not a four-wheeler, but a minivan. On one side of the road, it's basically a, a complete straight drop-off going for hundreds of miles. My kids were in the back, 
And my youngest son is really afraid of heights, and he was sitting on the side of the cliff. And he is freaking out. Eventually, we get to a place where I can turn the car around and start going back down. And when we start heading back down, he says, good, I'm not on the death side anymore. I was glad that he, Bryce says and continues, I was glad that he stopped freaking out. But I was thinking, dude, whatever happens to the car happens to everyone in the car. It does not matter what side you're sitting on. Bring this to our union with Christ. Whatever happens to Jesus happens to you. Jesus has been crucified. You have been crucified. Jesus has been buried. You have been buried. You have, Jesus has been resurrected. You have been resurrected. That is our true and certain hope. That is the wonderful promise of the resurrection, and it changes everything about our lives because we are united to Jesus. So what does this mean for our lives? This is moving into our third point. And, we, and what does this mean for our lives? And this is uh, when there's a lot of things going on here that we can zoom in on. And I want to zoom in on a few things. When the disciples saw Jesus, the, the woman, for example, in verse 8, they quickly departed the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. There's fear. There's great joy. When Jesus appears to them, they took, hold of, of, they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. In verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. Like, how should we live in light of the resurrection? First and foremost, the, the answer to that question is worship. Is worship. And we, so we see the disciples worshipping him, but the way that we worship Jesus is not just by singing songs, which we have done today. Christ is risen from the dead, death by death. I'm forgetting the lyric. <laughs> but it goes like, Christ is risen from the dead. We are one with him again. Oh, death, where is your sting? The glory of God has defeated the night. So yes, we sing and we worship Jesus in song, but that's not all. We give to Jesus our very lives. We worship Jesus by following him with our everyday lives, with our thoughts, with our words, with our deeds. We worship Jesus with our entire lives. And we see this. Very clearly in verses 18, 19, and 20, when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. But then he says something else. He gives a new purpose, or it's not a new purpose, it's actually a renewed purpose to God's people. He says, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in, in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so right here we see something very incredible about this. Is that Jesus is calling us to worship him with our entire lives. And what Jesus is actually offering isn't just a new purpose. He is actually offering a new way of living. He commands his disciples to go, teach, go into the world teaching everything that he has commanded them. Jesus is offering a new way of living. And throughout his entire ministry, Jesus is offering healing. He's offering forgiveness. He's offering reconciliation with God. He's offering a, a, an open community because he's creating a welcoming community. And these are things that Jesus still offers 
as well today. He offers these things to the world through his people, through his church. And perhaps you are here today and you've been hurt by the church. You've been hurt by some of Jesus' followers. And I expect that's actually the vast majority of people here. And so what this could do is this could actually make you skeptical. This could make you cynical. Like, can the church really be the hands and feet of Jesus? Can the, the church really offer the same things that Jesus did? But so if you're here today and you've been hurt by Jesus' followers, that's on us, so to speak. The reality is, is that Jesus is unlike any other ruler of this world because his throne is a cross. His crown is made up of thorns. He was pronounced the king of the Jews when his nails were driven into his hands. If we are really following Jesus, if we are truly following Jesus, then the same sacrificial death and service that defined Jesus should also define our lives as well. When we live under Jesus' rule, we welcome others. We forgive those who wrong us. We apologize to those whom we have wronged. And when we live life together and follow Jesus Christ, we are demonstrating Jesus' kingdom to the world as well. And so what this means is that when Jesus is in charge, when his followers truly live under his reign, then you will find forgiveness. Then you will find joy and kindness and peace and humility and faithfulness and gentleness because that is the way of the king. That is the way of our king. In other words, this is how I want to put, I want to put it. When you follow Jesus, you are a witness of the resurrection. You are a witness of the new creation that is coming because Jesus is at work in your life today. The Holy Spirit is at work in your life today as you follow Jesus. So if you are a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, you can prove that Jesus' tomb is still empty. You can prove that Jesus' Jesus's tomb is still empty in a number of ways. I, you can prove that Jesus' tomb is still empty by daring to love your difficult neighbors, by repenting for your sins a little more quickly and a little less defensively, by walking away from temptation, by going to work with a fresh sense, sense of purpose and contentment, by recommitting to praying for that impossible situation, by sharing the good news again, by persevering in your struggle with dep of depression, by approaching your spouse, your kids, your roommates, with a fresh sense of wonder and, aff of, and affection, or opening yourself up to risk and going where no one else wants to go. You see, friends, as we're followers of Jesus Christ, we're also witnesses of the resurrection because Jesus is doing something new in our lives. He's doing something new in our lives because he really did, he truly did defeat sin, death, and evil upon the cross. He really did walk out of that tomb. He really... He really rose from the dead. That is true. That is our certainty. And we have been united to him in faith. And the, the wonderful news is that Jesus is working in our lives and making us more and more into the new creation. And as he's doing that, we also are witnesses of the resurrection. Let's pray.